0: Welcome to the podcast Think Biblically: Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology at Bioland University. We're here with our guest today, Dr. Sarah Estelle, who's professor of economics at Hope College in Holland, Michigan, and does a whole host of things outside the university. Among those are, she's a research fellow at the Acton Institute. Uh, she's associate editor of Journal of Markets and Morality. She's affiliated with the American Economic Association, the Association of Christian Economists, uh, the Committee on the Status of Women in the Economics Profession, and a list that could go on for some for for, uh, for additional length. Um, but her specialty one one of the areas of specialty is on the intersection of economics and criminal justice. So mm-hmm. I have a hunch that we're going to get some things that we hadn't thought about before, maybe get some of our categories rearranged mm-hmm. in this conversation, because we haven't, I don't think we look at criminal justice much from the perspective of an economist. Mm-hmm. So, Sarah, welcome. Really glad to have you with us, and appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. So you're, you're trained as an economist, and I take it you do a lot of the traditional things that economists do. Uh, but tell, tell our listeners a bit how you got interested in criminal justice and the intersection of your discipline and criminal justice.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, my understanding of economics is that as a social science, it's a study of human behavior. And there are so many interesting human behaviors involved in. Um, the commission of crime, policies related to reducing crime, rehabilitation, and the like, that I wanted to bring an economic lens to those difficult questions. Uh, The real impetus for my involvement in this space, which actually is a pretty large area within economic research and the economics literature, was frankly the availability of data. So I learned um, along with my co-author on a project I'm sure I'll get to talk with you all about, Um, that there was a a data set available from the state of Michigan. uh, And as an empirical economist, access to data about interesting human behavior just piqued my curiosity. Um, And I didn't even know what was in the data at first, I just knew it was on individual incarcerated people in the state of Michigan. And I thought, wow, there must be some interesting questions that we could ask and hopefully answer uh, with that data. And I think it's important for our economists to be involved in this space because of the complexity of the relationship of policy and human behavior and kind of strategic responses uh, that can flow from changes in policy. So I was mostly just curious. Okay. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, it's
0: one of the great things about being an academic is yes. you get to follow those areas of your curiosity. Yes. Uh, but this one has r- lots of real-life practical yeah. import. That, that's really important in this area. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you've got lots of empirical expertise, and you've, you do a lot of, lot of work with the data on this. Why is it important for Christians to be concerned about this empirical aspect?
1: I, I think the short answer is because it is so complex that, um, you know, these factors that feed into um, whether an individual commits a crime, whether an incarcerated individual goes on after they're released to commit more crime, that there are so many intricacies there that we can't simply re- rely on our kind of gut hunch all the time. Uh, even a more fleshed out theory of criminal behavior isn't always going to be um, accurately predictive. Um, certainly even our good intentions as Christians towards former offenders won't always pan out in the way that we expect, so um, a basic economic literacy is is helpful. I think for getting at a at a few things. First of all, bringing a perspective to criminal justice policy in particular um, that takes a full assessment of costs and benefits associated with that policy. Um, so we don't just think about public budgets, right? It's expensive to incarcerate people and make our decisions based on that, or um, incarceration, uh, reduces, um, an offender's freedom. And we're going to just kind of knee jerk reaction to that. We want to account for all of those things. And I think economics is well suited for, uh, kind of a more holistic understanding of the costs and benefits. Okay. I think in terms of our methodology too, um, one other thing is that, we're almost obsessed as economists with causal relationships. We're not um, content with just looking at correlations or associations. We really want to understand if this policy changes, what does that cost? Not just what is that associated with, but we're just very careful in that way. So if we really care about incarcerated individuals, their families, their communities, we probably want to know the causal relationship.
0: Okay, and that's good for the, for those of our listeners who are not social scientists to, to remember that just because two things are correlated doesn't mean that one causes the other.
1: Exactly. Um, exactly. So, I mean,
0: criminal justice reform has always been an issue that's been on the radar. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been we've been talking about this for, for most of yep. my lifetime. Um, and it's, I mean, it's always a hot issue. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's hotter than others. Mm-hmm. But what makes the discussion of it different today than it's been in the past?
1: Yeah. Well, I think for the fact that it's coming to the fore, that incar- the incarceration rate in the United States is just sky high. It's the greatest in the world. Um, per 100,000 population in the United States, um, it's something like 655 people are incarcerated. That's higher per capita than Russia, than China, and far beyond kind of our, our intellectual and legal forebears uh, in the United Kingdom, right? That's where we got our ideas about uh, law and legislation. Um, we're just way outpacing them, and there's a question as to, to why that is. Um, and, and I think that should raise some concern or some questions um, I think what's really changed is the tone of the conversation. And I think in practical terms, this, this changes things too, where when I think back to the 1990s and, and, uh, a hopeful, um, uh, politician running for office uh, would probably, at at least at one point, uh, stand at a lectern and kind of pound their fist a little bit and say, I'm going to be tough on crime, right? They would really make this commitment to be universally tough on crime. And these days, for the last few years in particular, oddly, in this political moment, we have almost this bipartisan understanding that we actually need to be smart about justice and understand the various consequences of criminal justice, not just the effects of our sentencing policy on recidivism, but what does it mean for families and communities? What does it mean for the ability of former offenders uh, to return as productive citizens? Um, I think that's a good thing to think more broadly about the ramifications, and I think that is somewhat new.
0: Okay. So so let, let, Sarah, let's be a little more specific sure. here. Um, what exactly is are the contributions that that you feel like e- economics is making to the whole area of criminal justice reform? I mean it's one thing to talk yeah. about the cost and that that's sort of obvious the costs of keeping people incarcerated. Yep. But there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how how economics factors in to the public policy decisions that, that should be made yeah. on justice reform?
1: Well, one way, even before thinking about the empirics, is just a theoretical framework. Um, over centuries, there's been a debate about how to even understand criminal activity. Where does that come from? I mean, at various points in history, people have even right felt people's skulls, <laughs> right, to feel these lumps and bumps yeah. and determine whether yeah. they're, they're of a criminogenic type, um, right? Maybe some people are just... In their essence, they're a criminal, and other people don't commit crimes because they're not criminals. And I think today we would think that was kind of tautological. That's not really helpful to think of crimes are committed by criminals. We want to understand what are the factors that that contribute there. Um, and so, one thing that economics has to offer, thanks to uh, Gary Becker, um, particularly in the 1960s, um, is
0: Gary Beck was a University yes. of Chicago, Chicago economist. Yes,
1: Nobel okay. laureate, um, wonderful social scientist that, that took the real workhorses of economics in terms of our toolkit and applied it to so many interesting human behaviors, marriage, fertility, education choices, and criminal activity. And if, So
0: would, would this be oversimplifying to say that he was the precursor of Freakonomics?
1: Well, it's a little bit different, but I think, yeah, to see, you know, he was accused of being an imperialist, an economic imperialist, which has a very negative connotation. Um, But when people apply it to me, if If I can kind of reframe that and say, if you mean like Gary Becker, I would happily take that as a compliment because if economics has something of value to say about human behavior, and it's a human behavior we care about, marriage, fertility, education, Mm -hmm. criminal justice, I want to be involved in that discussion. Mm -hmm. So if that makes me a quote unquote imperialist in the line of Gary Becker, I'm all about that. Um... But here what he does, uh, what he did is provide us a framework for understanding that it's not just criminal types and non-criminal types. I think this should be particularly appealing to Christians who understand that we all have proclivity towards sin and we Mm -hmm. all face temptation or souls and needs instead, right? The line between good and evil exists, Mm -hmm. runs through each one of our hearts, Um, that he understands uh, Becker- Gives us a model that allows us to understand criminal activity as if, as if it's the result of some calculation of costs and benefits. Now, that phrase "as if" is important because we're not saying uh, that someone who drives drunk is sitting down before they do so and calculating these things. You know, adding up numbers in two very, two different columns and and deciding whether to do that. But it works well for us, this model, because it's as if they do if we understand that perhaps increasing the cost of being uh, caught after drunk driving uh, diminishes uh, that activity. Or if the benefit of uh, some theft increases. So if you imagine kind of a, a brass ring versus a diamond ring, and you think, oh, well, you can be arrested for stealing either but it might be worth it for a diamond ring, other things held constant, Mm -hmm. than a brass ring. This is what the rational choice model of Gary Becker allows us to understand, is that it's not just, I'm a criminogenic type, therefore I'll commit a crime, but that these factors, as they change, can affect behavior. I think one of the um, most, uh, I don't know, real-world issues this addresses then is why do we see in low income neighborhoods or communities or among low income families why do we see more criminal activity in these settings and one is that the opportunity cost of getting caught and incarcerated is lower
0: Okay, explain explain what, yeah, what, what you, I mean, explain what you mean by opportunity, opportunity cost. cost
1: yeah so opportunity cost is this idea of what are you sacrificing And I think the human person really longs for certain types of freedom. And so we're all sacrificing that. But what is it that you enjoy in your freedom? For those of us who have strong family and community ties, where we have jobs that we find fulfilling and we get a a reasonable paycheck. Um, being incarcerated sounds much worse than when you're scraping to get by and you don't have community ties and you don't have a strong family or you don't have a, a job that's paying the bills so not,
0: not as not as much at stake yeah,
1: there's not as much at stake and so the sacrifice not being as great that balance and considering of costs and benefits the cost of criminal activity looks less intense um and so okay, again, because the that, person,
0: f- yeah. Calculates that they have less to lose, right? If, if they, if the worst case scenario happens and they get caught and go to jail,
1: absolutely, they have less to lose. So it's not that um, low income people and or criminals are of a particular type genetically or in terms of the shape of their head, right? It's it's that the factors that are at play uh, are of a different um, magnitude for them. So and you're, and like, you're
0: suggesting that some, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe not, maybe not at all, but. But some people actually make a rational choice to commit crimes.
1: And even, and I think that's more likely in, in cases of, let's say, um, my research looks in part at retail fraud, which is high-priced or repeated shoplifting. I think actual rational choice probably happens more with those sorts mm-hmm. of behaviors. That can be addictive behavior for some people. But in a lot of cases, it's, you know, can I get away with getting some cash yeah. in my pocket? Um as opposed to where substance abuse is involved with drunk driving and, and the like. But what's kind of neat about the rational choice model is it still works pretty well, even when the person's not literally making these calculations.
0: Really, so um, even if the person's somewhat impaired
1: yeah, through
0: drugs or alcohol, it still sort of works?
1: Well, so let's think of something that we do um, on our kind of routine basis without really calculating it. Um, You know, I I live in Michigan. Um, Our highways are are pretty wide open and and we've got a high uh, speed limit. I think it's 70 miles per hour. But when we cross the border into Ohio, I pay, especially on the turnpike, I pay really close attention because there are police cars every so often. And even though I'm not sitting there thinking, well, what would the, you know, what's the likely cost of a ticket if I get one I just know that it's higher than in mm-hmm. Michigan the likelihood of getting caught is higher and so I just watch my speedometer more closely I don't spend a lot of time calculating that um, really until today I hadn't thought of that as an example because it's so natural to what we do so the model would predict that kind of behavior it gives us accurate predictions without people actually having to think like the model
0: mm-hmm. so would, that, would you say that also would apply to uh, what you refer to as recidivism, which is the—well, I'll let you define it. Sure. What, you, what you mean by that.
1: Recidivism is just uh, committing future offenses. So we often talk about former offenders or incarcerated people when they— um, re-enter society, when they come back to the community, will they commit future crimes? And we wanna understand, uh, in particular in my research, I'm interested in how the severity of a sentence, the length of a sentence or where you serve that sentence, for example, um, how does that affect the likelihood that more crimes will be committed in the future? I think oftentimes we have kind of a gut response that harsher sentences are going to reduce recidivism or future crimes. Because longer sentences are, are tough, and you want to now especially avoid that. But actually, it's a little more complicated than that uh, in terms of the theory. This is why we need, need to go to the data and understand whether longer sentences do routinely reduce recidivism. In some cases, we find it doesn't.
0: That's, that sounds really counterintuitive.
1: It does, to not
0: Because we, we always say think that a harsher sentence is a stronger yeah. deterrent but you're saying sometimes that's not true
1: right it is
0: how, how does that work
1: yeah so there are a few concepts that i think are helpful one is general deterrence now this works intuitively um if it is announced that uh let's be extreme um shoplifting results in the death penalty there's a general deterrent effect people who never even thought about shoplifting or would be marginally enticed by shoplifting. I'm not shoplifting, right? It's a general deterrence. You don't actually have to engage in the criminal activity Mm -hmm. for it to affect your behavior. I want to even avoid the appearance of shoplifting, right? And so that's intuitive. Incapacitation is another way that incarceration operates, which is for most crimes, if you put someone in jail or prison, they can't actually do the crime mechanically. Mm -hmm. I'm not able to drive drunk when I'm sitting in a prison cell. So those are intuitive. What uh, criminologists call specific deterrence, though, is a little more complicated. Uh, We tend to think, okay, if if prison is supposed to be about teaching someone a lesson, or even better, in the best case scenario, rehabilitation, then that experience should reduce recidivism. But we have concerns, and I think they're well-placed concerns, that for some people, uh, harsher sentences, more time in prison could actually increase their criminal human capital, right? So their skills at committing crimes or their criminal network, right? You get to know people in prison that that can facilitate Mm -hmm. um, getting away with something or teach you how to avoid getting caught Um, or simply just change your value functions and kind of how you think about these things. We hear this more, I think, more often than not, because it's more intuitive here, with juvenile offenders. When you think about putting a young person um, into a a jail as opposed to a home-based rehabilitation, you might say, but does that have the potential uh, of a criminogenic effect, right? Making them into a criminal, if you could do that, right? To make them a criminal um, in in their future years. But even more, the rational choice model would suggest to us, okay, like crime... Criminal activity is less likely the more community ties you have, um, the more um, fulfilling and well-paying your job is. And if being in jail or prison longer weakens those ties, again, that's a way Mm -hmm. that longer jail sentences could result in more criminal activity in the future.
0: How does does your rational choice model... Uh, I mean, you've used basically what we've described are nonviolent crimes sure. as examples. How, how does that impact the, the, how we ought to view violent crime? Is it any different?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. The one nice thing about the rational choice model is it's flexible to including even things that are difficult to quantify, so if I was modeling violent activity, I would start with the same basic framework of considering this full range of consequences. Um, but I might have to be even more attentive to psychological costs and benefits. Um, I, it's hard to think of psychological benefits to committing crime, but clearly for some people there are some, right? Trying to, again, in nonviolent terms, for some people, uh, ripping off a business in some way feels good, right? Getting ahead or getting one over on someone um, in some um, very broken ways. We can convince sure, can ourselves see, that...
0: You know, I can see people thinking that they're reversing some injustice by yeah. doing that or even even re- taking revenge yes. on someone. Yep. Uh, and I think there are other parts of the world where the revenge value uh, is much higher than it yeah. is in some parts of the West. No, I think that's too. right.
1: Um, and so with violent crime where another human being is involved, I think we'd want to pay particular attention to that um, piece because I think there's something more psychologically troubling, or there should be, to a, a violent offense. Um, and so the the particulars of how an economist would employ the model would be different, but I still think the basic framework um, pans out pretty well.
0: Okay. Now, you've done a lot of research on... Sentencing guidelines, mm-hmm. sort of man- mandatory sentencing yes. re- requirements for judges and, and juries, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you, you've you've got a lot of things that you're suggesting ought to change mm. about manda- about mandatory sentencing and sentencing re- requirements. What what have you concluded about sure. these, and what changes are you, would you recommend?
1: Mm-hmm. So the data that my co-author, David Phillips at at Notre Dame, and I have had access to and used in in this project um, are from about a 10-year period in the the state of Michigan where sentencing guidelines were um, in effect. And they are um, today, even. Uh, And we have access to data on what's known as operating while intoxicated in Michigan, uh, third degree, which means repeated drunk driving, and retail fraud, high-priced or repeated shoplifting, Um, And what we were curious about is what are the effects of these sentencing guidelines and the strictness or the severity of the sentencing guidelines? Uh, Because this is a real tool that policymakers do use. Um, Our legislature here in Michigan um, can tweak the cutoffs that determine whether someone is um, bound to have a minimum sentence of six months or a year. Uh, And so we wanted to understand the the effect of that, right, cause and effect relationship, Um, but not just for felonies in general, but as it might differ for different crimes uh, and even different uh, criminal or offender types. So what we found was that longer sentences reduced recidivism for retail fraud offenders. And this is particularly true uh, for young male offenders in the Detroit metro region. So we were able to kind of drill down and see particularly strong negative, well, good, right? We might think that's beneficial, but negative in the sense of increase the sentence and recidivism goes down. So an inverse relationship, mathematically speaking. But what's interesting is when we look at the OWI third offense, that repeat drunk driving, there's no discernible effect. Hmm. Longer sentences don't affect recidivism, which in some ways is intuitive. It's or it's consistent with an understanding that, you know, drunk driving probably often results from substance abuse. Addictive behaviors. It's less coolly calculated than mm-hmm. probably a lot of retail fraud offenses, and probably locking someone up and cutting off access to alcohol is not an answer to when they they come out and have access to you know the same stressors and and same issues in their life and access to alcohol mm-hmm. once again. Um, and so, well, I I can't. I guess my my policy. Kind of implication that I would draw from this is we don't want to be tough on crime across the board in the sense of just let's ramp up everyone's sentence. And we certainly don't want to just lock everyone up and throw away the key. Um, in fact, 90% of felony offenders will re-enter society. This is why we have to be thoughtful about recidivism. I mean what's going to happen in the future. Uh, we can't incapacitate them forever. And I don't think we want to, right? These are, are human people with with real value. Um, and so I think what our research suggests is if we're going to be smart about justice, we need to think carefully about different people um, and also different categories of crime and what's the best way to rehabilitate people.
0: So in, in some cases, you found that longer sentences actually increase the recidivism rate. In others, they de- they decrease it Um and, and in, in most of those cases, it's that what makes the difference is that the person just doesn't normally have that capacity to engage in the kind of rational choice that would that would make the consequences clear. Yeah, am I getting that right?
1: I, I think there there is one dimension of this that is, um, yeah, how how much does the experience of incarceration how, how, much, how large of a factor is that in the decisions of committing future crimes? So prison is not pleasant. In fact, as a side note, I, I like to share this. A, a, a former offender once, once told me that one of the hardest things about prison for him was there was no color. For the years hmm. he was in prison, you're surrounded just by drabness. I think that's important for Christians to keep in mind when we think of like human dignity, right? It's just in these these basic ways, kind of the inhumanity of of that, right? And so people are gonna have negative experiences with incarceration. But how much does that influence your choice when for a you know, someone with a substance abuse issue, when there are these other issues that are chemical, that are mm-hmm. maybe mental health related, maybe really deep-seated spiritual issues. Um, it's not that that prison experience doesn't factor in. It's just a small drop in the bucket of a, of a lot of issues. Um, and the more effective rehabilitation would require digging into those mm-hmm. those particular family or mental health or spiritual issues. I think it's one point of, of promise in uh, the recent discussion and uh, the adoption of the First Step Act uh, this fall, um, that there is a little bit more attention to effective rehabilitation within incarceration situations.
0: I know one of the things you recommend is that uh, people who are going to jail be, be incarcerated in a facility that's closer to their community rather than farther away. Yeah. so that they can continue those community ties right and make and ho- and hopefully contribute to less recidivism once they get out. Is that
1: right? That's one of the provisions of the first step act. Um, I think that was in November. Um, This is a federal law. Both houses uh, supported it. Um, President Trump signed it into law. Um, Unfortunately, in some sense, it only affects 10 percent of the incarcerated population because it is a federal law, but it really sets a tone um, in in many ways, but in in this way, to suggest that wherever possible, right, where there is a bed in a facility that is of the appropriate security, um, that people be placed within 500 miles of their community, mm-hmm. uh, there are a lot of... Um, Nonprofit organizations, especially Christian ministries, that are working hard to keep kids in contact with incarcerated parents. And this just makes it that much easier, right? You're talking about maybe maybe potentially a bus ride as opposed mm-hmm. to a flight. You know, it's an in-person visit for a day um, as opposed to a, a phone call. Um, I think, you know, I know all sorts of things have potential unintended consequences. Uh, that's kind of an economic perspective that we, we should you know, bring to mind frequently, but that seems to me, I don't know, clear when. Um, Yeah, that 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 makes sense where possible to allow for that relationship. Now, if there's some trouble there that that makes it not healthy for children to be in contact, right, that's still an option, too, but at least it reduces the. The cost again. We love to talk that way in economics, right? The 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 hurdle that is there to overcome if a child and a, a parent really do need to maintain that connection.
0: Two final questions, Sarah. Given your expertise, what are you encouraged about in terms of criminal justice yeah. reform?
1: Yeah, I am encouraged by the conversation. Um, as I said, I think this is almost unique for this polarized time that there is an issue that so many people can come together over. Um, A handful of years ago, President Obama gave a speech to the NAACP where he complimented uh, Newt Gingrich and the so-called Koch brothers, uh, as well as his attorneys general. Uh, He just listed people on both sides of the aisle and advocates and politicians and, you know, people involved in these, these movements, all kind of wanting to have this conversation on smart justice. And I think that's that's something special when we consider, when we understand that we can set ideology aside and we can come together over an Im- important topic um i'm i'm very encouraged by that i'm encouraged by a lot of the provisions in the first step act uh things as to me simple and obvious as it outlaws putting restraints on pregnant women who are incarcerated um i think that's important i think even you know in In the particulars of that, it's important in terms of the health and dignity of those women. But even in the way we think about incarcerated people, right? Not to uh, chain women that are are pregnant, I think, sends an important message to Americans uh, that these are people who are incarcerated. Um, But thinking carefully as well, within the, the First Step Act, there are provisions for this recidivism reduction programming. And the language is Mm evidence-based. So there's a desire not just to have good intentions toward rehabilitation, but the law really calls on engaging in the sorts of research that allow us to make good decisions about rehabilitation.
0: One final question. What can Christian listeners like who will be listening to this do to make a positive impact Related to criminal justice reform.
1: Okay. I would say, in the whole vein of of criminal justice, my biggest suggestion would be to think locally. Um, Get involved in private and nonprofit and interpersonal um, activities that engage with the formerly incarcerated. Um, If you could be a mentor to someone, that's wonderful. If you can be a friend to someone, that that can be an enormous help. Um, there are a number of organizations that um, work on employment, training, um, on education, on maintaining those relationships between kids and their incarcerated uh, parents. Um, we even have evidence. I, I I think of things as simple as providing. I mean, simple to us, but really important for returning citizens. You know, bus passes Mm -hmm. um, that could be provided to allow someone to get to work for a while. Um, Funds for removing visible tattoos. If you think about the effect of a a tattoo on the face for someone who is trying to Mm -hmm. start afresh and go into the workplace. So there are these kind of smaller things that we can do. And small doesn't mean inconsequential. In fact, oftentimes local means more effective Mm -hmm. than the big sweeping things. Two other things I would say... Uh, let's reflect on how we think about uh, the human person, incarcerated individuals being made in the image of God and how that's reflected in our attitudes um, and how we're involved. And then finally, how does that reflect in our language? It can be hard, and I hope I've modeled it okay in this podcast, but we, I think the way we use language really matters. So I try to use language like former or offender, mm-hmm. Um, as quickly as possible, it's nice to move from former offender to neighbor to friend. Mm -hmm. Um, right. Those are, those are meaningful and important experiences in someone's life, but the sooner we can see that and, and really act according to our understanding that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, the better for all of us.
0: I think that's a good, that's a good place to stop on a, on that theological note. And so, Sarah, I so appreciate the insight that you bring to this, not only as an economist, but how you frame it biblically and theologically. And so this I see this as, as an outgrowth, not only of your discipline as an economist, but also an outgrowth of your Christian worldview and the importance of how, just how seriously you take your faith. So, uh,
1: Well, it's a pleasure to answer such wonderful questions and... Um, I look forward to talking with you again. Thank
0: you. This has been incredibly insightful, and we'll definitely have to do another installment of this. Uh, So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Sarah Estelle, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and tell a friend. And hey, thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.